some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Is it possible for a serial killer to just stop killing? Are they capable of leaving that need to inflict pain and suffering behind them? Perhaps they only move on to another location, another hunting ground, where their prey can't identify them. Is that what happened in New England when the Connecticut River Valley killer paid the quiet countryside a visit? His murder spree spanned 10 years, stopping nearly as suddenly as it began, remaining unsolved to this very day. In total, seven women would lose their lives and the eighth victim would survive, but carry the trauma with her of having faced this unknown killer. On October 24th, 1978, 27-year-old Kathy McMillan went out to the Chandler Brook wetlands in New London, New Hampshire, to photograph some of the local birds before their migration south for the winter. Kathy had just left work that afternoon at Addison Publishing in North Wilmot and was headed out towards the wetlands to enjoy the rest of her day. It was the last time Kathy was seen alive. When Kathy failed to show up for work the next day, her work reported her missing. Police went looking for her and it was later that night of October 25th, just a few hours after she had been reported missing, that her body was found. The beautiful 27-year-old was found in the Chandler Brook wetlands area, not far from where she had been photographing birds. She had been stabbed upwards of 29 times, and her skirt had been pulled up above her thighs. Police had very few leads to go on, and her case fell into the cold case status not long after her body was found. It would be two years later before another body was discovered. In the summer of 1981, another disappearance would add to the mystery of what had happened to Kathy McMillan three years before. Mary Elizabeth Critchley was a 37-year-old woman who had been a grad student at Antioch New England Graduate School in New Hampshire. Mary lived in the town of Waterbury, Vermont. She had been living in Waterbury, with a friend of hers while she attended classes at Burlington's University of Vermont. On July 25th of 1981, Mary Elizabeth Critchley had just left Farmingham, Massachusetts after traveling the three hours from her home in Waterbury to visit her dentist there. This would be about a three hour drive from Waterbury to Farmingham, Massachusetts. Mary was originally from that area before moving to Vermont. Mary decided to hitchhike from Farmingham to Waterbury that day and planned to get rides that would take her up through the Vermont town of Battleboro in southern Vermont, up to White River Junction in Vermont, and then on to her home in Waterbury. 
She had been dropped off initially in Farmingham, Massachusetts by a friend of hers, but opted to hitchhike home that afternoon. Mary was last seen on I-95, standing at 5'8", weighing only 135 pounds. She had long brown hair that was tied back that day. She had been wearing tan pants, a maroon sweater, and brown leather sandals. Mary was also carrying a small blue knapsack with her. Later that night, when Mary failed to arrive home and contact her family, her sister called the police. Mary's sister, Cecilia Critchley, reached out to the state police for Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire in hopes of locating her now missing sister. On August 9th of 1981, Mary Elizabeth Critchley's remains were found by two tree loggers, logging in the woods of Unity, New Hampshire. She was located in the woods off of the Stagecoach Road in Unity, New Hampshire. She had never made it to Vermont. The medical examiner was unable to pinpoint an exact cause of death for Mary due to the condition her body was found in. Her death was labeled suspicious due to the nature of where she was found and how she had disappeared. The Connecticut River Valley would once again find some semblance of peace after Mary's remains had been found. People had not yet began to whisper about a possible serial killer hunting the highways of New England. That was until 1984, when 17-year-old Bernice Cordemensch would vanish in West Claremont, New Hampshire, right along the same Connecticut River Valley where two women previously had lost their lives. Bernice was a nurse's aide who worked at the Sullivan County Home which was a local elderly care facility. Bernice was last seen hitchhiking along the highway of Route 12 along the Connecticut River Valley, as she was thought to be attempting to get a ride to her boyfriend's home. Bernice's remains would not be found until two years later. In April of 1986, a fisherman was in the woods off of Cat Hole Road in Newport, New Hampshire. While fishing in the area, he came across skeletal remains hidden in the woods off of the Cat Hole Road. New Hampshire authorities were called in to investigate the apparent crime scene. The skeletal remains were taken to Dr. Henry Ryan, the state of Maine's medical examiner's office. At that time, the state of New Hampshire did not have its own medical examiner's office. It was common practice for any suspicious death cases to be sent to Dr. Henry Ryan's office in Maine. Dr. Henry Ryan was able to determine that the skeletal remains were female, and after sending out her dental records, he received a positive match to the skeletal remains. The remains belonged to 17-year-old Bernice, who had never made it to the safety of her boyfriend's home but instead had been stabbed numerous times, her body had then been dumped in the woods of Newport, New Hampshire. Greg Swoop of the New Hampshire Attorney General's office stated that Bernice had likely been at that site where the fishermen had found her since her disappearance in May of 1984. On July 20th of 1984, Ellen Fried, 
was a 27-year-old nurse from Claremont, New Hampshire. Ellen worked for the Valley Regional Hospital and was on her way home from work that evening when she stopped at a local rest stop payphone. Helen walked to the payphone and called her sister to check in. While she was on the phone, she mentioned to her sister that a car had driven into the rest stop parking lot. She told her sister that the car kept circling back and forth in the parking lot. Ellen then put her sister on hold, walked over to her own car to check the engine and make sure everything was working in her car as the driver of the other car was making her nervous. After her car started, reassuring her that everything was fine, she went back to her call with her sister. After a few more minutes, she ended the call and walked back towards her car. It was the last time anyone would speak with Ellen Fried alive. Ellen disappeared after the call to her sister that night. She never showed up for her shift at the Valley Regional Hospital the next day. Not showing up for her shift was unlike her, as she had always been reliable and a solid worker. Later on that day, Ellen Fried's car was found abandoned alongside the highway, not far from the payphone she had used to call her sister. It was evident from that moment on that Ellen was missing. One year later, in September of 1985, Ellen's remains would be found in the woods of Newport, New Hampshire. Her body was found lying in a wooded area alongside the banks of Sugar River. Like the other victims, Ellen's body looked to have suffered multiple stab wounds and investigators thought she had also been sexually assaulted. Due to the time that her remains had been out in the elements, investigators were unable to determine an exact cause of death. It would only be one year later Bernice's body would be found just a few feet away from where Ellen's remains had been found. The two women had gone missing only a short time apart, but it would be a year difference between the discoveries of the women's body in that area of Newport, New Hampshire, along the Connecticut River. At this point, investigators in the states of Vermont, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts began to wonder if they were looking at a serial killer or serial killers. The similarities between the disappearances and the murders were becoming too much to ignore. All of the women were fairly young. Most of the victims were nurses or nurses' aides, and all of the women had gone missing along the highways of the Connecticut River, passing between the three states. The challenges would now begin to present themselves. In most of the cases, the women's remains were not found until years later, making cause of death, evidence, and motives elusive to police. Before the remains of Ellen Fried would be discovered in fall of 1985, another young woman would go missing. It was July 10th of 1985, and 27-year-old single mother Eva Marie Morse of Charleston, New Hampshire, needed a lift as she had just finished her work for the day. Eva was on her way home to her then 10-year-old daughter, and as was common at the time, she put out her thumb on the highway of Route 12 in Charleston, New Hampshire. It was the last time the 27-year-old mother was seen alive. She was reported missing that evening when she didn't return home from work. 
Nearly a year would pass with no signs of Eva and no leads in her disappearance. That was until loggers in Newport, New Hampshire were yet again logging in those fateful woods. It was April of 1986 when tree loggers in Unity, New Hampshire would once again find human skeletal remains. Investigators would be called into the woods of Unity along the Connecticut River. The remains were found only 500 feet from where the body of Mary Elizabeth Critchley had been found. The body was identified as that of Eva Morris, the 27-year-old single mother who had been missing since July of 1985. Again, her body showed evidence of several stab wounds, specifically targeting her neck and cranial region. The stab wounds to her neck were so severe that it looked as if the killer had tried to decapitate the young mother. Investigators now realized they were dealing with a potential serial killer or serial killers. It looked as if the women had been taken out into the woods throughout the path of the Connecticut River Valley that ran along the New Hampshire-Vermont borders. All the women showed signs of having been viciously stabbed to death, and their remains were all found in fairly close proximity to one another over the course of the years. While police were piecing together the relationships between all the victims in the area, and whether they were related or purely coincidental, the Connecticut River Valley killer was selecting his next victim. On April 15th of 1986, 36-year-old Linda Moore was outside doing yard work at her home in Saxton's River, Vermont. Linda was a mother of two children who had married her high school sweetheart, Stephen Moore, 15 years before. The Moores owned a local contracting business together in the town and had been well-liked in their neighborhood. Linda had served as the president of the state hospital auxiliary. She was described as a lovely lady by one of the women who had worked with her at the Rockingham Hospital Auxiliary. In the late morning of April 15th, Linda Moore was seen by a neighbor sitting in her lawn chair outside her house. According to the neighbor, he spotted Linda at approximately 11.45. At 12.40 p.m., not even an hour later, Stephen Moore tried calling his wife. There was no answer. He tried some time later in the afternoon of the 15th to reach his wife. And yet again, he wasn't able to connect with her. Becoming concerned, he wasn't able to get a hold of his wife. At about 3 p.m., Stephen and one of his employees drove over to the Moore household. What they saw next was something out of a living, breathing nightmare. And now, for a quick break. It's estimated that at any given time, there are 90,000 missing persons. And that's just in the United States. Imagine if your loved one went missing. Is there anything that you wouldn't do to try and find them? Would you cross oceans? spend your life savings, continually retrace your last known steps, just hoping something jumped out at you. This is Missing Persons, a brand new podcast, and I'm your host, Mike Morford. If you're a true crime podcast fan, you might recognize me from some of my other podcasts, including Criminology, Three Men in a Mystery, 
and the murder of my family. The most important part of hosting a podcast for me is advocating for the cases and the victims I discuss, as well as their families. I've been approached by so many people with a missing loved one asking me if I could help them in any way. And if it was my loved one that was missing, I'd want someone to help me too, so I couldn't say now. And this podcast, Missing Persons, is the result of me wanting to help. In every episode of Missing Persons, you'll hear about a person who disappeared and currently remains missing. In some cases, there are clues to follow and leads to check on. In other cases, it's as if the person just vanished off the face of the earth. And in each episode, you'll hear from someone who's searching for that missing person. And whether they've been looking for 30 days or 30 years, the pain of not knowing what happened to their loved one is real. And the search for answers, a painful one. Missing Persons officially launches in March 2020. Will you join me and become part of the search for answers in these cases? If so, search for and subscribe to Missing Persons right now, wherever you listen to podcasts, so you don't miss an episode. Now... Back to the show. Lying face down on the floor was Linda, Stephen's high school sweetheart and the mother of his two children. Linda was laying in the couple's living room just a few feet from the entrance of the family's kitchen. Blood stained the Moore's living room carpet. It was evident that someone had followed Linda into her home and attacked her not long after her neighbor had spotted her sitting in the lawn chair. Linda had been stabbed repeatedly, upwards of 20 times. She had fought back hard against her assailant, but to no avail. Unlike the other victims, she was murdered in her home and her body was not dumped into the woods as the other women had been. Vermont State Police were tight-lipped as to the exact details of Linda's murder in order to protect any chance of catching the killer of Linda, and more than likely the Connecticut River Valley killer. Investigators spent six hours combing the Moore home for any possible clues as to the identity of the killer. After several hours, police removed Linda's lifeless body from the Moore home, sending her remains to the Fenton and Hennessy funeral home in Bellow Falls. Stephen Moore was clearly in shock after finding his wife so violently murdered in the family's living room. In an interview with reporters on the afternoon of April 15th, Stephen was quoted as stating, My wife's dead. She's stabbed to death in the house. I'd rather talk about it tomorrow. Linda's case would soon become cold, as no suspects were ever determined in her murder. It is of note that Saxon River Falls is along the Connecticut River Valley. It is located on the Vermont side of the Connecticut River. While Linda's murder was different in how the attack occurred, the method and manner of her murder led investigators to feel that the cases were connected to that of the Connecticut River Valley killer. Time would slowly creep past, like a river winding its way along the hillside. It seemed that after the murder of Linda Moore, the Connecticut River Valley killer's appetite was satisfied for a few months. Then, in January of 1987, the killer would slither out of his hiding place, striking cruelty 
at his next victim before slinking away into the darkness once more. Barbara Agnew was a 38-year-old part-time nurse who worked for Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. She lived in Norwich, Vermont, a town that also lies near the Connecticut River and borders New Hampshire. Barbara had been working towards her bachelor's degree in 1987. She was known to be independent, reliable, kind, and was a mother of a six-year-old boy whom she shared joint custody of with her ex-husband. Barbara had gone skiing that weekend at Stratton Mountain, a popular ski mountain in Vermont. She and a friend had taken to the mountain on January 10th in order to enjoy the snow. After an enjoyable day on the slopes of Stratton Mountain and a quick dinner out, Barbara made her way back home to Norwich, Vermont in her green BMW. On January 10th, not long after Barbara began to make her journey home, a snowstorm hit the Connecticut River Valley area. For unknown reasons, Barbara would pull her vehicle off the highway and into a rest stop in Hartford, Vermont. The rest stop was located on I-91 northbound, only 11 minutes from Barbara Agnew's home. Barbara's car was parked sideways at the rest stop and was reported as abandoned two days later. When a snowplow driver complained that the car was blocking his ability to plow the rest stop parking lot, Vermont State Police were called in, and they discovered blood on the front and back seats of the BMW. A few days later, an employee of the rest stop discovered the blood-stained outer clothing that looked to belong to Barbara Agnew. The clothing had been discarded in the rest stop dumpster. Police found Barbara's jacket, vest, and her sweater. Investigators were unable to determine just how severe Barbara's injuries were at that time with only the bloodstains on her car and clothing to go off of. Barbara had seemingly vanished into the snowstorm that had swept through the valley. Three months later, on March 28th of 1987, Anne Adams, as well as three of her friends, decided they should go for a walk. Spring had begun in Vermont, and the warm weather had started to dissipate some of the heavy snowfalls of the winter months. The walkers were roughly three-quarters of a mile away from the home of Anne Adams, walking along Advent Hill Road when Anne spotted something about 80 feet away from the road. Barbara's disappearance had hit the community of Vermont hard and Anne was no different. She had been thinking of the missing woman for quite some time. As had many people in the area, Anne immediately recognized that what she was seeing ahead of her was the body of a woman. She recognized the remains as being that of Barbara, based on pictures that had been shown throughout the time that the Vermont woman had been missing. Adams described the scene to a reporter for the Rutland Herald as there was quite a big blood stain on the snow, looking like it had came from her neck. Adams couldn't see any immediate wounds on the body. 
from where she stood on Advent Hill Road, but she knew it was Barbara, the 38-year-old nurse who had been missing since January. The killer had placed Agnew's body near an apple tree set back from the road. If Barbara's body had been placed 25 feet further back, then neither Anne nor her friends would have spotted her remains. Investigators were called in, and they confirmed that the body of the woman found on Advent Hill Road under an apple tree was that of Barbara. Investigators determined she, too, had suffered multiple stab wounds to her neck, just as the other victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer had. Barbara was still wearing her ski clothing from her outing to Stratton Mountain on January 10th. Questions still remain as to why Barbara had stopped at that rest stop when she was only 10 minutes away from her home in Norwich. Was it the weather that caused her to pull over? Or had she gotten wind of something more sinister shadowing her along the highways of the Connecticut River Valley? Like the other victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer, leads dried up and time marched on. Weeks passed from the discovery of Barbara's body laying beneath that apple tree. Then months, spring turned to summer, summer turned to fall, then once again winter. A year passed since the discovery of her remains, and the small towns along the Connecticut River Valley began to once more return to their normal, quiet solitude. For a time, it seemed that the nightmare that had befallen the communities along the river in both New Hampshire and Vermont had dissipated. August of 1988, nearly two years later since the murder of Barbara, would shatter that illusion. 22-year-old Jane Borsky, a seven-month pregnant woman, was driving home on the evening of August 6th 1988. Jane had been at the Cheshire County Fair in Keene, New Hampshire that day and was returning to her home in Winchester, New Hampshire. Jane decided to stop at a supermarket on Route 10 in West Swansea. Jane wanted to stop to grab a soda for her trip home. She pulled into the parking lot of the supermarket and was just planning to snag a soda from one of the vending machines outside the store as the store was closed. Jane noticed a Jeep Wagoneer pulled in behind her. The Jeep was golden brown in color. A man stepped out of the driver's seat. He looked to be in his mid-30s to early 40s. He had blonde hair, was of a medium build, looking as if he weighed around 150 to 160 pounds. Jane watched in her rearview mirror as the man walked behind her car and made his way to her driver's side door, where she had the window open. Approaching her open window, the man asked her if the payphone was working outside the store. Jane wasn't able to respond as the man immediately grabbed her and pulled her through her vehicle's open window and into the closed parking lot of the store. The man then grabbed seven-month pregnant Jane Borsky and repeatedly stabbed her in the neck, chest, and abdomen. During the attack, the man kept repeating that Jane had beat up his girlfriend. 
a situation that had never occurred as Jane had never met this unknown man. He then asked Jane, while repeatedly stabbing her, if her car was from Massachusetts. The attacker stabbed her at least 24 times. He then threw seven-month pregnant Jane to the ground, walked to his Jeep Wagoneer, and drove off. The killer never checked to see if Jane was alive or dead. Fate played its hand that night of August 6, 1988, as Jane clung to life after her brutal assault. She crawled back to her car, managed to get herself behind the wheel of her vehicle, and was able to drive herself to her nearest friend's house after having been stabbed upwards of 24 times. Her friend was able to usher her inside to safety and call the police and ambulance services to get Jane immediate medical attention. Jane was brought to the hospital where she was listed as being in serious but stable condition. Despite the brutality of the stabbings to 22-year-old Jane, she, as well as her unborn child, survived the attack from the Connecticut River Valley Killer that night in August of 1988. While her wounds healed, the mental trauma she suffered did not. Jane has struggled over the years with depression and suicidal thoughts. She has never gotten closure on just who this unknown assailant was who tried to take her life and that of her unborn child. She is the only known survivor of the Connecticut River Valley killer, the only person to have seen his face and lived. After Jane was able to heal from her wounds, she gave investigators a description of the blonde man who pulled her through her car window. Police were able to develop a composite sketch of the killer, and this sketch is the only insight into just who this unknown serial killer was. Jane is the last known victim of the Connecticut River Valley killer. After the attack and subsequent survival of Jane, the killing stopped permanently, at least in the area along the Connecticut River Valley. Police were never able to find definitive evidence as to just who the Connecticut River Valley killer was. Years would tick by, and the identity of the serial killer would remain elusive. Investigators would go back and forth on whether all these killings were the work of one man. There was some uncertainty that there had ever been a serial killer at work along the borders of Vermont and New Hampshire. In the end, as time passed by, it became more and more resolute with investigators as well as the communities that shared those state lines along the Connecticut River Valley, that there had been indeed a serial killer stalking the highways that ran along the river. But that question still remained. Just who was the Connecticut River Valley killer? Leads were never very strong in this case, as most of the women's bodies were skeletal remains when they were found long after their initial disappearances. DNA evidence was scarce back then, and it was a brand new science and hadn't been fully adopted as an investigative technique. There were suspects whose names kept coming up within the case. Names that are still heavily associated with the Connecticut River Valley Killer, 
even though no charges have ever been brought against any of the men in question, without conclusive forensic evidence, it will be almost impossible to fully rule in or out any of the proposed suspects for the murders of seven women and attempted murder of one woman over the course of 10 years. And now, for a quick break. Talentless Talent, it's me, your host, Kylie Dills. Talentless Talent is a podcast about those with extraordinary talent. We're talking about conspiracy theories. We're talking to comedians. We're talking to painters. We are talking to those who make portraits. We're talking to dollhouse makers. We are talking to people about sports. We're talking to comedians, we're talking to sex workers, we're talking to models, we're talking to videographers. We have it all, including a very special pickle time. Talentless Talent is hosted by me, Kylie Dills, somebody who has no talent. So be sure to tune in, tune it in every Thursday. I'll catch you there, my Talentless Talent babes. We're having a good time. Now, back to the show. Delbert Tallman was a 21-year-old drifter who had shown signs of psychological issues in the past and had been traveling through Heartland, Vermont, Heartland, Vermont is a small town along the I-91 highway and is located within the Connecticut River Valley. He became associated with the Connecticut River Valley murders after the murder of a local 16-year-old girl. On May 20, 1984, 16-year-old Heidi Martin went for a jog and never returned home. Heidi was a sophomore at the high school in Heartland, Vermont, and she had been considered an all-American girl. Heidi's body was found on May 21st, less than 24 hours after she had gone missing. Heidi was found lying down in a shallow stream behind the Heartland Elementary School. She had been stabbed four times in her chest and abdomen. On May 23rd, 1984, Delbert Tallman was arrested for the murder of 16-year-old Heidi Martin. Tallman had been in trouble with the law in his past. In 1979, he was arrested for lewd and lascivious conduct with a minor, but that charge had been dismissed. Tallman was considered a suspect in Heidi Martin's death as three witnesses had placed him near the scene of the crime around the time that Heidi Martin disappeared. Initially, Delbert Tallman pled innocent to the murder of 16-year-old Heidi Martin. Tallman had spent time in menstrual institutions, and it came into question whether he understood his rights while being questioned by police when he was initially arrested for the murder. Evidence was to be submitted in the case that showed that Tallman confessed to the killing of Heidi. Tallman's lawyers put together a defense 
that stated that Tallman had only confessed to the murder due to his fear of the actual killer. Tallman subsequently recanted his confession. Tallman was later acquitted of the murder of Heidi when it went to trial. In 1996, Tallman was again charged for lewd and lascivious conduct with a minor while living in the state of Florida. This time, the charge would not be dismissed, and Tallman would spend four years in prison for the two charges. In 2006, he was arrested again for failing to register as a sex offender in the state of Florida following his release. Tallman was never charged in any relation to the Connecticut River Valley killings and was found innocent in the murder of Heidi. While Heidi Martin's murder has never canonically been considered to be part of the Connecticut River Valley killings, her murder strikes a similarity to the other victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer that cannot be denied. Barbara's body would actually be found three years later, only a few feet away from where Heidi Martin's body had been found. In 1997, a 46-year-old man confessed a crime so horrific to his family that they called the police to report the crime. Gary Westover was a New Hampshire resident who was paralyzed from the waist down. In a confession that will forever be associated with the Connecticut River Valley killings, Gary described to his uncle, Howard Minion, what he and some friends had done nearly a decade before. Gary reported to his uncle Howard, a retired Grafton County, New Hampshire sheriff, that in January of 1987, that he and several friends had driven to Vermont to party and have some fun. His friends had loaded him and his wheelchair up and they drove to Vermont. While there, they had abducted and viciously butchered a woman there, leaving her body in the woods of a back road. That year was the year that Barbara came up missing. Her body had been left under a tree on a back road in Vermont. Howard called the police, reporting the story his nephew had told him, his duty coming first and foremost before his family. He reported back that the police did not seem to take his statement seriously. As far as he knew, they never seemed to follow up on his lead. Howard swore he would never call the police for help again after that night. Gary Westover died in 1998, not long after confessing the murder to his uncle, Howard. In 2006, retired Grafton County Sheriff Howard would also pass away. With his death, the chance of possibly learning more about Gary Westover's confession in 1997 passed as well. At this time, Gary Westover has never been charged with the murder of Barbara or any other victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer. In 2005, another name would become synonymous with the Connecticut River Valley Killer. That name was Michael Nicolou, a 56-year-old former Army helicopter pilot. Michael Nicolou had been a Vietnam War veteran. He had received two Purple Hearts, two Silver Stars, and two Bronze Stars in his military career. 
Unfortunately, his success would be outshone by his troubling actions while serving in the military. In 1970, Nicolou was charged, as well as seven of his comrades, with the crimes of strifing civilians in the Mekong Delta. While eventually the charges were dropped against Michael, Nicolou would remain embittered towards the U.S. Army. Nicolou would receive treatment via the Veterans Administration for post-traumatic stress disorder throughout the remainder of his life. Michael Nicolou would move to Virginia after he left the Army. While there, he ran an adult store called The Pleasure Chest. Nicolou and his business partner were raided twice, both times for selling obscene materials. He was convicted of one of those charges, but the second was ruled a mistrial. It was while living in Virginia that he met Michelle Ashley, a young woman who was initially from Vermont. Soon after meeting Michelle, the couple moved to Holyoke, Massachusetts. While living in Holyoke, Massachusetts, Michael and Michelle had two children, a boy and a girl. Michelle's family still lived in Vermont. They had always found Michael to be unsettling. He was too quiet, and Michelle's family often felt Michael was creepy. Things weren't going well between Michelle and Michael in 1988. At one point, early in 1988, Michelle had told her mother and grandmother that she had planned to leave Michael. She was scared of him, as he was known to have a violent temper. Michelle planned to leave Michael after her sister's wedding in November of 1988. In late December of 1988, Michelle's mother went to the apartment that Michelle and Michael shared with their two children. She went into the house as she hadn't heard from her daughter in weeks, and she was concerned. She immediately realized something was off. The Christmas tree was up, and there were unopened presents under the tree. Food laid spoiled in the fridge. Most alarming of all, there was no sign of Michelle, Michael, nor their two children. Michael took his two kids to visit family members in other states during this time. He told people who asked where Michelle was that she had run off, that she had left him and abandoned the two young children. Sometimes he would tell people who asked about her that she was dead or that she had run off with a drug dealer. Michelle has been missing since November or December of 1988. Michael Nicolou would all but disappear over the next few decades. He avoided coming back to New England, he kept the children away from Michelle's family, and avoided investigators looking to speak to him regarding Michelle's disappearance. In 2001, Michelle Ashley's mother hired a private investigator to help try and find Michael Nicolou, and to learn just what had happened to Michelle all those years ago. The private investigator was able to track Nicolou down to Georgia. She obtained a phone number for Michael and decided to give him a call. To her surprise, Nicolou picked up the phone. Michael Nicolou was curt with the private investigator. He told her that Michelle was a slut that was doing drugs and had run off and left him and the children. It turned out 
that Michael had also remarried after taking his children away from New England. The private investigator asked about the children. Michael assured her that the children were fine. They were now adults at this time, no longer the two small children that had been taken away from Massachusetts and their mother's family to live a wayward life with their combat veteran father who suffered from severe episodes of PTSD. The private investigator disconnected with Nicolou. The next day, she tried calling the number again. It was disconnected. It seemed that Michael had not wanted to continue having further conversations with anyone looking into the disappearance of his first wife, Michelle Ashley. Nicolou seemingly disappeared again. That was until 2005, when the private investigator came across an article about a Florida man who had murdered his second wife, her daughter, and then himself. It was a murder-suicide. The killer's name was Michael Nicolou. Nicolou had remarried at some point in his time after leaving New England. In 2005, his second wife, Eileen, had also decided to leave Michael, fearing for her safety. Eileen moved in with her sister in Tampa, thinking she had left the terror of Michael behind. Michael refused to allow his second wife to just leave him. Nicolou showed up at the home in Tampa where Eileen and her daughter had been staying. He wore a black suit and tie, carried a guitar case that he had filled with guns. Nicolou forced his wife Eileen and her daughter into a room in the back of the house. Eileen's sister ran to try and get help from the police. Realizing that the police would soon be on their way, Michael Nicolou shot Eileen, her daughter, and then himself. All three died of their injuries. Michael Nicolou is thought to have murdered Michelle Ashley and disposed of her remains in December of 1988, as well as having murdered his second wife, Eileen Nicolou, and her 22-year-old daughter. Nicolou had connections to the Connecticut River Valley area, as Michelle Ashley's family had lived in Vermont during the time of the killings. Many of the murders occurred during times when Michael Nicolou and Michelle would be in Vermont visiting, putting him in close proximity to the areas where the victim's remains were found. The private investigator showed a photo of Michael Nicolou to Jane after his death. Jane thought that he greatly resembled the man she remembered attacking her back in 1988. At this time, Jane is convinced that Michael Nicolou was the Connecticut River Valley killer. The private investigator who was hired by Michelle Ashley's mother also feels that Nicolou that was possibly the Connecticut River Valley killer. Investigators also have listed Nicolou as a person of interest in regards to the eight attacks carried out by the Connecticut River Valley killer. Michelle Ashley's remains have never been found. They are more than likely left in the woods of New England, possibly somewhere off the Connecticut River Valley. At this time, there have never been any charges brought against any suspects for the Connecticut River Valley murders. None of these women have received justice for the heinous crimes that were committed against them.
While it seems the killings along the Connecticut River Valley area stopped long ago, it's possible that the Connecticut River Valley killer could still be stalking the highways of another location, remaining undetected, patiently waiting for his next victims to cross his path, or perhaps he perished long ago, taking his secrets with him to his grave. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.